Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. For the show that tackles some difficult topics sometimes, sometimes not so difficult. I think today is uh, more of a nattering uh, topic than anything else, but I could be wrong. I could be persuaded that it's actually an earth-shaking topic. Um, (laughs) Thank you for joining us, Uh, Lisa Levy. um, You are an expert in diversity, women's leadership, Gen and gender, and the re- way that I came uh, across you and was introduced to your work is through an article in Voice Mail Magazine, M-A-L-E, Voice Mail Magazine, on why men re- and why many women resist their male partner support at home. Now, Lisa, thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your background because you have a background in management and economics. Is that correct? Uh, indeed. Indeed. Um, uh, thank you, Heather, for having me on today. And um, yeah, I think I got to doing this work a little bit of a circuitous or different road than some people. Um, I was an economics major in college, and I have an MBA, and I had a first early career in investment management, and really didn't know anything about gender issues or didn't think much about that. And it was really through the experience of being in a a quite male-dominated field that I started observing things and um, really feeling like there was a way to create more effective and better work environments for women and men. And I saw an article in the uh, Boston Globe magazine called A New Vision of Corporate America, some more than 20 years ago, and it profiled a um, the first woman um, full professor at the MIT um, Sloan School of Business and another woman who had started an organization providing all kinds of uh, support services to, um, to professional employees or to all employees. And I said, that's what I want to do. And so, again, I kind of came at it from a much more experiential place than a kind of cognitive, I've studied this in college kind of place. And it's been a really um, interesting journey. So what do you do in your day-to-day work? What's your um, day-to-day work like? Do you counsel so people? As a, do you... as a consultant in this space for a long time, um, I work with a company – primarily companies, although I have worked with academic institutions and the UN and some other kinds of organizations, but I work with companies and uh, sometimes senior leaders, sometimes people in the human resources space, um, sometimes somebody focused on diversity issues, and it's really around helping companies put together a strategy to uh, do a better job of supporting and creating diversity in their organizations. So I help, I do um, employee research to help them get a window into how their employees are experiencing things, uh, you know, sort of where they see the challenges and what's going well, and then help them put together a plan and help to start putting in place things that are very concrete that help to um, respond to that. And sort of the ultimate goal is, you know, if we look at the leadership table of almost any company, it's still incredibly skewed towards white men, even after certainly some substantial progress and we can see women in very um, powerful positions, but on mass, if you look at the trends and patterns, it's still incredibly skewed towards white men at the very top of almost any organization. So it's trying to really change that um, profile. 
Um, it's interesting. You, by the way, you and I have to talk because my my PhD dissertation is on uh, women and job success after experiencing domestic violence. So, uh, you know, late, later on, you and I need to talk. <laughs> so, um, but uh, after you know, after that shameless personal plug here, um, but. One of the things that, as you're talking and talking about women in the workforce, et cetera, I keep thinking, but, yeah, but women are still raising the kids. And even um, the couples that I know of um, who are, say, over 40, where they say they have very equal distribution of labor, they end up usually they're, they're, they, they have some bucks, and usually they have a cleaning person. So they don't have to worry about who's doing the cleaning because um, they have an outside third party doing the cleaning, except she's the one who calls and arranges for the cleaning. She's the one who changes the schedule. She's the one who keep, you know, does all that kind of stuff. So she still has the basic responsibility for the cleaning, even though she's not picking up a dust rag. You know what I'm saying? Um so I see some inconsistencies um, when I hear people say, well, there's an equal distribution. Um, and, of course, we're talking about household stuff, but we're going to talk about how that relates to the workplace in a, in a few minutes. So what about household work? What about work in the home? Are women still doing the bulk of that or at least having the responsibility for the bulk of that? Okay, uh, one. I have a clarifying question. Are you including caring for children as part of that, you know, bucket no, of topic. caring for the home? Separate, separate question coming up, coming up with the, the okay. child care. Separate question. Um, what I've seen is that the household tasks are much easier to share equitably, which doesn't mean everybody does all the things. But, you know, if you encompass in that household management, making sure the cars get fixed and the leaves get raked and the snow gets, you know, shoveled, if that's relevant for where you live, I think sort of at that level you you see a greater equity in how that gets handled. One of the things that's often said is women tend to do the things that are more um, time-sensitive, you know, you can kind of mow the lawn when you want to, whereas you need to feed yourself, you know, <laughs> multiple times yeah. a day, whatever, get food. So there is definitely some of that. But my observation is for many couples, when it's just the couple before they have children, that it's on on mass, it's much easier to to strike sort of more of a balance, although you may be more specialized in the things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and that, I, I have so many questions about this. Um, and so before children, B.C., it's easier to strike that balance. And I can see that. I can remember that from my own life before children. It's much easier. Once the children come, though, it's different. Um, so let's go ahead and segue into the children. Once kids come, it's different. For me personally, I was going to have everything equitable, everything 50-50, blah, 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 with the children. I was going to continue to work my full-time position. I, Wow. I gave birth to my first child, and that changed. I no longer was interested in going into work 40, you know, 40 hours uh, a week somewhere else. I wanted to have responsibility for raising my own child the bulk of the time. Now, I continued to work. But I did what a lot of women do, which is a career killer, which is reduce your hours so that you can spend more time raising the kids. Is that uh, so? notion gone now? I mean... Um, it's, a, it's a complicated question, so let me preface it by saying um, there are different models in which people kind of construct their families or how they share the distribution of work that needs to be done, including, you know, the economic piece. Um, And so partly what I found in this space is there's so much judgment about a right way to do it. And I feel strongly that, you know, there's not a right way for everybody, that it's quite a personal thing. That said, the book that I wrote, um, is really about how do you do this in an equitable way if that is your goal. And part of it is my whole um, kind of the uh, North Star, I guess, or what I always think about is this idea of being a team and what that means. And so 
part of what happens is, you know, people say, oh, you have to share everything exactly equally, you know, what, then you're just nitpicking all the time. And I see it as kind of a broader construct than that. Let me back up, though, by saying that for me, this really started from a personal journey, like often things do. Um, I'm one of seven children and, you know, grew up Catholic and, you know, my mom, was married early, had a lot of kids. I'm the sixth of seven. Uh, My parents divorced when I was very young. And, you know, it was very painfully clear to me all my life just how overwhelmed my mother felt. And, you know, I think raising children is really hard work, really satisfying work it can be, but really hard work. And I felt very strongly that, if I was going to have children, it was going to be in a model that I didn't see anywhere in the world. And I was also someone, I don't know if I always would have felt that way, but that felt comfortable saying um, then I would rather not have children if it was going to be in the tip, more typical models that I saw. And so my husband and I, you know, we met pretty young. We were together for almost 10 years before we had our first child. So you know, we had a lot of time together to discuss these issues and et cetera. And, you know, he, although growing up in a pretty traditional model, was very sort of open-minded and kind of willing to embrace this idea. So some of the structural things we did, which I think made a really big difference, was that we both took parental leaves of several months with both children and we saved for, you know, more than a year in both cases saying, you know, how is it that we can do this and not have, you know, all that much income coming in for a couple of months. And then um, we also both worked on a four-day 80% schedule for almost 10 years. So, you know, it really was structurally a system that helped us to move into those roles. And one of the things I often say is, Paternity leave is so powerful for men, and, you know, sort of it's been set up that men are home even a week, and then they go back to their sort of life as it was, whereas typically the the mom is home, and I say, you know, she's getting a Ph.D. and child X, and he's not. And so yeah. the problem with that is then he doesn't feel very comfortable or competent, and as she gets more adept, it's painful for her to see that he's not doing it in the way that she thinks looks very comfortable and competent. So you get sort of these spiraling situations. And my deep belief is that men are just as good nurturers as women and that it's about practice. It's, you know, it's, or some people are more nurturing by personality, but most of it is, is practice. And men don't have that opportunity to get the practice. And it's scary. I think it's scary for anyone. Your child is inconsolable. You don't know what to do, you know. And if you could hand off to somebody, you would. But mothers don't usually have that option. So I say even if dads are not able to take a paternity leave, to have time that they are in charge where, you know, they are figuring it out is so powerful. And what I've seen over and over is the men feel so gratified. Like once they get past that sort of fear or discomfort, they feel so connected to their children in a way that's, um, I think, even harder for them to describe. So anyway, that's a little bit about my own story. What what I Part of the reason that I wrote this book that I wrote was my sort of goal was to say, how do we minimize divorce? And I don't have any problem with divorce, by the way, you know, um, but I just know it's painful for all involved. So to my mind, part of that is how do you get couples to talk about to the best of their knowledge, because you don't know until you're in it. But the sense of, like, how is our life going to look? What are our careers going to look like once we have children? You know, what are we going to do if our child is sick or if someone gets a, you know, a relocation opportunity or whatever? And I find couples don't really have that dialogue and that there's really nowhere to go to even help educate you about that. So 
part of the goal for my with the book was to provide some of that education and inspiration and examples of couples who have walked a different road than is, I think, more typical. Okay, a couple of questions about that. By the way, if you'd like to call in and join this conversation, um, please do so. The number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. And uh, the chat line is also open if you want to go. Oh, we also already have some comments in the chat line. I'll share those with you in a few minutes, uh, Lisa. If you... um, Part of this this conversation strikes me, I mean, I'm older than dirt. We've been having this discussion at least for 30 years that I'm aware of. And are things really changing? Are things really different for the 25 or 30-year-old mother than they were for those of us who are over uh, 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90? (laughs) I... I think the I think the short answer is yes and no. <laughs> Let me elaborate a little bit. So the yes part is I do think that um there is much more both social expectation and desire for men to be involved with their children in a way that was not the case, you know, 50 years ago or maybe even 30 years ago. I do think that that's real. At the same time what I see is that the infrastructure of our lives and this I talk about in the book you know is powerfully set up to reinforce the status quo so the sense of you know jobs being boundaryless and the sense of you know you have to make that your first priority etc goes a long the way job? towards you have to make the job the first priority is that what you're saying yes yes oh really so the, okay. you know there's right. the, there's the sense i think of only one of us can have that kind of job and someone else has to have the other job that's more flexible, et cetera. Um, So I think you have definitely a lot of issues going on in the workplace. The other thing that I talk about is, and uh, very much related to the article that, you know, you, you started with is um, I see that men and women are both uh, involved in kind of what I call a dance and that there's a very self-reinforcing cycle of gender. And part of my goal in talking about these issues and writing the book was to help both men and women step back. I hear them say, I want to have an egalitarian situation, yet I think if you are not very aware and proactive, the, the other forces are so great that it devolves into that pretty quickly. And so to say, what, if anything, might I be doing to contribute to this that is um, different from what I want, or at least think I want? So, you know, how is it that men contribute to this complexity, and how do women contribute? And my my theory is that both do. Let's move into that in just a couple more minutes, um, because I wanted to talk about the economics of what you've been saying so far. Whenever I've heard this discussion about uh, women's roles and changing uh, equality between marriage partners, et cetera, et cetera, it often paints an ideal picture, a picture like you and your husband had. You know, how many working people, male or female, live in a comp- with a company where they can adjust their hours? A lot of people can. The high-tech people can, but not I, – I, I don't have – fit numbers, but I would think at least 50% of people are not out there doing that. They're working for a factory, or they're working for a sales department, or they're working for uh, a beauty shop, or whatever, and they do not have the flexibility to say, okay, we've had a child, so now we want our four-day work week, and the employer says, okay, fine, we'll make that happen for you. Um, is Are we talking about some really different economic lines when we're talking about flexibility for parenthood and sharing parenthood? Um, Again, I I see it all as it's not sort of a black and white thing, but this is what I can say. As As a corporate consultant, my work has, when I first began doing corporate consulting in this space, it was around work life issues. And so, you know, that was really coming in to help companies figure out how to be more supportive 
around work-life issues. What did that look like? And so I've really gotten to see both sides of it. I've gotten to be the company for many years. And um, there are certainly limitations, and I would always say that, and there are economic factors that come into play, clearly. But I also have observed for a very long time that uh, a lot of people sort of never ask because they just assume that it will be turned down or that it will make them more vulnerable. And I think sometimes that becomes a self-reinforcing cycle as well, that I think there's a lot more opportunity to do that. Sometimes there are complete roadblocks, so I'm not painting this rosy picture. But what I know is that there's tons of pockets to make change, but I think it involves, you know, coming to the table, negotiating around that. Part of it is being clear about what it is that, you know, how you can work best and most effectively. I mean, the company wants to know that the work's getting done, you know, and so to the extent that you can come in and and have a proposal or a plan that you've put in place, you know, again, at least it's a springboard to talk about it. And, you know, I think better companies want to empower their employees to do that. Sometimes you get people who are really against it. You know, I, I, I'm not saying that's not out there. There's a lot of fear in the world. And so I, th- I think that it's, you know, partly the bravery to go forward, the thinking about sure. it. What I have seen is really, which, you know, I guess always surprised people, that people do it in very senior jobs. They do it in blue-collar jobs. They do it in all kinds of jobs. And so it's the sort of broad, you know, sort of information to say only these people can do it and not those people is not accurate from what I have seen. Uh, okay. I think so that if it's I'm a clerk partly perception Target, and partly reality. Yeah. So if I work as a clerk at Target, I have, I, I, I mean, my perception before our conversation is that well, you know, I mean, really, I mean, you know, you're going to go negotiate with your boss for some sort of, you know, uh, change in work. I don't know. I don't know. My perception would have been not really. If you work for Amazon, sure, you can go in and negotiate that. Um, but if you're working at Target or, you know, something like that, is that going to happen? Um, so, and what you're saying is, is that maybe. I think I think maybe I think that it's certainly worth a try. I think in those kind of jobs you're describing, I think there are definitely um examples of companies that have taken advantage and if anything people are treated as they're completely fungible and it's like if you're not here at that time forget you. So there's some yeah. bad very um you know uh, punitive kind of things that happen. But I also think even in kind of most jobs like that, they, typically people usually put in for their schedule or they have some ability to say, this is what works better for me. So, you know, I, again, I think that's where you probably have an ability to some degree to influence that. But I'm, I don't, you know, it's not necessarily you get to pick the entire thing. I think it's looking for pockets and windows to tell you the truth. And it's going to be different for different kinds of jobs. But I think it's deciding or trying to trying to use the levers of influence you have to, to make that more possible. I guess that's the way I see it. Okay. All right. Um, so, because, uh, I mean, I grew up very blue-collar, and, and the notions of some of these things, I mean, it was very clear that, well, yeah, if you were an executive somewhere, you 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 have some play. I mean, even in some of the large companies that have gotten a lot of play over the last year or so for offering paternity leave and things like that, um, you know, and then you read the press and, uh, you know, their lower-level employees don't have the same options as the um, executive employees. Um, and, you know, so there is a, a, a difference there. But what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is doesn't hurt to ask, doesn't hurt to try. I think it doesn't hurt to try. And I, a part of what's so ironic about, to my mind, having done this work for a long time, is if you take the typical lawyer who probably makes a great deal of money and ask them if they could ever work flexibly or if they could ever cut back their hours, they will swear on a Bible that or whatever, a Torah, that they cannot. 
because they feel like, you know, the norm is you have to work like this. So all I'm saying is I think everybody all the way up the ladder feels really trapped by sort of social expectation about what is possible. And the people that I talk about in my book, I think are people who, you know, came to this place from lots of different angles and like pushed back or got lucky sometimes, you know, whatever. But I think that sort of the social programming about what we have to do and it's possible, I think is a big deterrent to trying to find new scripts. That's how I define it. We're talking about it. And I must say, I think that the younger generation, what we're calling the millennials now, they are taking some of these changes for granted. And they're just saying, nope. You know, not gonna, not gonna do it. Um, I mean, they, they don't seem to have any huge compunction about just saying no, can't do that. I'll quit. Uh, you know, I mean, in my generation, well, at least for me personally, it was like, what do you mean you quit? You can't quit. You know, <laughs> and yet I see that with some of the younger people, it's just kind of like, nope, can't do that. I'm quitting. You know, and it's like, wow, really? Okay. Um, so what, what, it's one of the more interesting things. One of the more interesting things I'll share quickly is. Um, at one time I was doing a lot of work with law firms and was talking to associates at law firms who, you know, are the folks that come right out of law school and you're usually in that associate position from anywhere from seven, eight years to 10 plus years. And talking to the associates, you know, when the people who are the partners running the firm were that stage of life, they wanted nothing more than to be a partner at the firm. Whatever that took, that that was it. That was the that's what I'm going for. And talking to these younger folks, women and men, so few of them that is their aspiration to to be in that role because they see a lot of downsides for it. And one of the things that's been so interesting in the you know doing this kind of consulting is for the leadership you know, for them, like the rules of engagement are changing so dramatically that it's really confusing for them, you know, not understanding, well, how can these young people not, you know, that's what you want to do, right? You get in and you work hard and this is your hope. And so, you know, many of the people in the room will say, I just want to work here for a couple of years, you know, try to pay off my loans or start paying off my loans. And then like, I'm going to go do the work I really want to do. And so I think what you're seeing is that the leadership is really grappling with these new, not new, but evolving values around how work and basically the rest of your life, you know, connect or integrate. Okay, so let's get back to our, our uh, real focus here, which is we've talked a lot about t- uh, child care and work structure and all that kind of stuff. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Who cleans the toilet? Um, I have um, to tell you that when I was first married, I had this notion that everything in my life was going to be equal, 50-50, and it was going to be wonderful. And we had our tiny little apartment with one bathroom upstairs, and we had our first visitors, our first guests coming to the house. And so I started cleaning. My husband said, what shall I do? And I said, why don't you go upstairs and clean the bathroom? Again, Looking back on that, I was the manager there, right? He didn't say I'm gonna, you know. So that was that was that's the the scenario that I am used to. So that even if I'm not actually doing it, I have to be the one taking response, ultimate responsibility for it. So that's my background. Anyway, so I went upstairs right before to change clothes right before the people came, and the bathroom wasn't clean, the toilet wasn't cleaned. And so I thought, well, I have two options here. I can ignore it or I can clean it myself. And then I thought, wait a minute, maybe there's a third option. So me being the nasty person that I am, I took out a piece of paper and some scotch tape. I wrote down, if the toilet isn't clean enough for your satisfaction, see John, it was his job. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) we can debate that I'm not a nice person, okay? I'll entertain that notion. Um, But I just, it irritated me that I had to take responsibility for it. I still hear those kinds of comments from young women. I still hear them saying things like that, and I think, oh, my gosh, that was 100 years ago that I experienced that, and are you still experiencing that? So let's talk cleaning the toilet. Who's cleaning the toilet? Who's taking responsibility for getting it cleaned? 
so what so for I think I've learned kind of probably what's the more typical female response by listening and learning than what I felt inside. So I realize I'm kind of the unusual one. But for me, I was so happy and relieved to have someone in the trenches with me that uh, that was the most important thing. So even if they didn't clean the toilet quite as well, and I used to clean apartments in high school, so I'm a really good cleaner. <laughs> uh, my husband said when we first met, you know where all the dirty places are. <laughs> like, hmm, that's because I look for them. And that's not in a good so, way. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so clearly I came with a greater skill and awareness in that area. But I think at the same time, what I knew as I didn't want to be doing all that. I wanted to be doing part of it. So, uh, you know, I, I think I didn't have as strong feelings about that, which is interesting because my personality is probably more like that. What I saw as when I was writing the book and then talking and doing some of the like media stuff for the book is, you know, how strongly that is for, for many women. And, um, what I see is, again, around the children, I think a lot of that comes back to this, you know, who has more experience and just plain feels plain feels more comfortable. I think with the house stuff, I think there are, uh, you know, partly it's different standards of cleanliness, which can be very real. And I think it's a sense of, you know, to me, it's very much like delegating at the office. If you delegate something, you can say that doesn't meet my standard, but I think if you always say that, then the person's going to get pretty discouraged, and you know that's not going to motivate them to want to do it any better. And so I think it's it's kind of I see it more in that way that by you know by it having being a negative thing, you're that you can't delegate something and completely dictate the terms. I just don't believe that you can with anything, whether it's your kids or an employee or your husband or anything. So I think it's only fair to say they need to have some agency in what they're deciding. Yeah, but devil's Uh, advocate here. I mean, having raised children too, they will purposely do a slapdash job in hopes that you will just not, you know, not ask them to do it again. So... Do you have to just accept any old, you know, no, half done job not. as I mean, acceptable? I think to me, it's it's all a, you know, it's all discussion. I, what I see in this kind of more shared approach uh, that I talk about is you move more to this sense of, and it's not all this nirvana. It doesn't mean you never have fights and disagree. And I mean, I don't want to portray it as something it's not, but I think it comes to be much more sense of we're on the same team, not a different team. And you know what? Okay. Let's write down everything that needs to be done to care for our family. That's cleaning the toilet. That's buying the Christmas presents. That's maintaining our social life. That means buying the clothes for the kids and taking them to doctor's appointments. And there's endless things. And it's a sort of sense of, okay, there's all this stuff to do. How do we split this up so it feels fair? And I will tell you, there's so much norm that goes back to the mother's always in charge that – you know, we found through the years, like my husband would ask the school, call me first. And they would call me, me, me the woman, every time. And it was like, <laughs> so there's a lot of bias in the system about, you know, men aren't in that role. And I think men feel very marginalized in lots of ways because there's a lot of, you know, information coming at them. And so, you know, sometimes you should have a stay-at-home dad on the program, or maybe you have, but that is not like a warm and fuzzy place for most men. So anyway, I think it's, again, you're just fighting against so many norms. And even like making play dates, people would call and my husband would answer and they would say, can I speak to Lisa? And he would say, oh, who is it? You know, what are you calling about? And oh, well, I can do that. And and sometimes, like, the mom wouldn't know what to do. She wouldn't know how to respond. Like, I don't talk to the dad. <laughs> Wait a minute. And it was, You're the it, male. Are you sure you can like, do that? Well, I could probably <laughs> put something on the calendar and, like, be pretty clear about what's happening. So 
I think I've just gotten to see it from both sides more, and I've certainly, you know, heard a lot of the stories. I mean, I've been interviewing women and men about these issues for over 20 years, so I've gotten to hear a lot of the very valid frustrations women feel, and some men do want to get out of it, and they don't want to be responsible, and they do see it as your job. You know, I think that is real, but I think there's a lot of men who – are much more in the middle, and I think some of it is they get a lot of negative feedback that doesn't make it very easy for them either to be a partner in that way. Well, that brings us back to the original article that that we started with, and um, that is uh, the article that was in Voicemail Magazine um, citing several different sources, uh, including the study that was done in Mozambique um, where they were trying to get men more involved in fathering and and, uh, caring for home things. And they found out that men's wives and partners... Uh, tended to kind of look at their they they wanted the men to take responsibility, but then when the men did, the women tended to see it as a kind of an intrusion into their territory. And the gist of the article um, was that, gosh darn, if they didn't start looking at that in the United States, and went whoa, you know these these women living in the huts in Mozambique are sharing a real, real solid thing with their sisters who are executives of the United States, which is the same feeling, that we say we want this help, but then we kind of see it as kind of stepping into our territory, Um, which I found very interesting, because when I first read that, I thought, yeah, blame us, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's right, blame the women, you know. But then I started thinking, I remember that. I, I, I can recognize that. You know, I would complain about not getting any help, but then when, you know, um, load the dishwasher, load the dishwasher, and then I'd come out, the dishwasher would be loaded, but the counters would still have crumbs on them. And I'd think, oh, for heaven's sake, you know, when you load the dishwasher, you clean the cupboards and you clean the counters and, you you know. And so I would be giving really negative um, responses to that. Is that what you have found? Uh, Well, it's kind of funny in in our family. I think in almost every fam in every couple, it seems like someone is the dishwasher person that they rearrange the dishwasher, and it varies the gender of that person, but it seems to be like ubiquitous. And my husband, coming from an engineering background, is the dishwasher rearranger, and I'm always like, is this really worth your time? Is it that important? Well, I just like to do this, and I used to find it irritating, and now I think it's funny and say, if you want to spend your time cleaning the dishwasher, knock yourself out. It's not that important to me. But um, well, I Lisa, think, I like you, I but think, everybody knows that those dirty dishes have to face the center. Okay, everybody knows this. All right. <laughs> I don't know what it is about the dishwasher. It's this very emblematic thing of of <laughs> domestic life. It's quite funny, but um, in terms of I think the reality still remains very deeply that the social norm for men is as a provider. And so if you are not a provider, you get negative feedback. And it might not be direct at you, but there's all this nuance coming at you. And I remember one dad telling me, you know, he was in the grocery store and you know, he was the at-home parent for two years, and the the person, I don't know, like some person in line said, isn't that nice that you, you know, took the day off and uh-huh. to, to be with your kids? And he said, you know, like it got to the point I didn't even want to tell my story, but people think you're a dad who doesn't work, like you're a loafer, what kind of, you know, all those negative yeah. things. And I think for women, you know, still you are very much expected to be the caregiver it's very deep it's been you know socially conditioned for a long long time and if that's not going well you the mom are the one who's kind of on the hot seat for that so those are so deep in all of us that you know it's hard to even explain that and part of it is you know maybe again it since it's it's so socially conditioned, it makes you want to do more of those things. So my my high schooler just on Friday was homesick from school. And this morning, like, I made him this wonderful breakfast. 
there are times my husband would make a wonderful breakfast for him too, but I think I'd be more inclined to do that because it makes me feel good. And I think it's that, I guess that's a way I mother him or nurture him or whatever. And so, you know, I, I see that is, I see how much joy that brings me. And I think he might do it, he might not, but, but the difference is he wouldn't feel guilty about it if he didn't do it. Whereas I might. And, you know, so I think it's just so deeply conditioned. I really, really believe that. The other piece of the puzzle that I saw or that I've really come to understand over many years is that, you know, men still have sort of assumed power in the workspace. Women fight to prove they're competent. You know, if men are just assumed to be confident. And I think you have exactly the mirror image in the home space. People assume if you're the mother, you know how to care for the child, right? They'll hand the child to the mother if they're crying or something. And as a man, I think you have to fight to sort of show that you have those skills. And so, but okay, I'm going to devil's advocate here. Do they? Do all men have those skills? I, I don't think they do. Uh, well, like, I think it's like anything. I think you have to develop them. And I think you're right. Some men don't. They don't ever develop them. And they don't have those skills. But I think there are plenty of women who don't really have very good skills in that space either. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, they, yeah. might be, they might be front and center, but it doesn't mean they're very skilled at it. So That's true. That's you know, true. I'll, I'll give I, you I, that I one. Think, <laughs> so to me, I think it's really – it's kind of looking at the controllables. And again, I think there's lots of opportunities for men to learn those skills if they want to. And I think many really want to. And so, you know, how do we make that more possible? But what I do see is it's very, it makes total sense that when women have children, like for the first time, especially if you've been slogging it out in the corporate or workspace, like everyone is so deferential to you. You have all this power you didn't earn. It's, it's you know, that privilege we talk about. And this is where women have their privilege. So that's a really good feeling. So it's this power you've been, you know, scratching for and fighting for in the workspace. And all of a sudden, you're like the queen. That's very intoxicating for people. And so it makes total sense that women go like, hey, this is where, I don't think this is conscious, but you experience it. You know, all that feedback you get in the world reinforces that. So that's really a a powerful thing. And there's a lot of strong feelings about wanting to, you know, bond with your child for for many people. So so I think that, you know, again, it, it made more sense to me as I learned why sort of women felt so strongly about I need to control so many of the variables in the home space versus sort of being more, you know, organic about how the, these things get handled. Well, That's what well, they're I'm evaluated on. You. That's I, what they get a lot of feedback on yeah. about whether they're a good woman. That's still the main metric in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, when I read this article and I thought, well, why, women, why are women being proprietary about cleaning the toilet? You know, what, what difference does that make? But I have this personal theory. Someday I'm going to write it up in, in one of the psych journals. Wait, if, if I live long enough, I'll write it up. But I have this theory that we all need power. We have an innate need Absolutely. for power. And if I am, you know, Bill Gates, I've got power, right? But if I'm the person who cleans Bill Gates' toilet, I don't have power. However, I can take the power that I do have of maybe, you know, unrolling that, putting that toilet paper on the thing, you know, top side down instead of bottom side, you know what I'm saying, the roller thing. You know, you, we, take, if we take power where we can take power because as individuals we need power, is, is my little theory. And so if the only thing I have, if, I'm a, if, I, if I work in an office and I'm uh, some clerical person who has no, no innate power in that office or in the workings of the business, but I have power over what goes on the bulletin board, then by gummy, I am going to control that bulletin board with an iron fist because that's what I have power over and I have this innate need for power. So I 
when I read the article about women's resistance to men helping, even though they don't want they want help doing the work, I thought, well, this is the case of if if the only thing you have power over is cleaning, even if you don't want to do the cleaning, you're going to try and preserve your sense of of power over it. Does that make any sense at all? I am in violent agreement with you about that. I absolutely oh. agree with what you just <laughs> okay. said. Okay. Absolutely. Let's write it down. <laughs> yeah, let's get it published quick. <laughs> I think um, we all need power and agency and places we are we can feel good and feel like we have impact and you get that where you can. And so I I do think it's very much connected to some of these gender norms that we see and that are a struggle to change. So you would think, though, that if that were the case, and again, going back to the gist of the article, which is even high-powered executives in Western uh, world are still feeling some, some, some sort of proprietary uh, thing over the housework stuff. Um, you would think it, that if they have that power that they need in their, you know, executive functioning at work, why would they still be hanging on to that vestige of power over the household chores? I think th- there is probably some personality-dependent variable that's going on there. Um, but I think, again, to me it goes back to that strong feeling of, if you're a good professional as a woman but a lousy mother, you, that's not a good combination. Ooh. If you're a great <laughs> professional and a lousy father, well, you could be a better father. So I think yeah. it's where do better you with still are validated. Wife in the new yeah. <laughs> Wait, say that again? I said if you're a great executive and a, and a poor father, it's okay because you'll be able to be a better father when, with the trophy wife and the new kids. And uh, we clearly see that happen. That the, yeah. the, I mean, there's research on this that the relationships that men have with their children and their wives, often a second marriage, uh, are very different than sort of the first time around. And yeah. uh, you know, again, I think they're not in that proving mode. And I've always felt very fortunate, but I also was very kind of keenly looking for that that for me a life partner was always going to be someone that was like a best friend and was that I thought by personality would you know could consider being in that kind of very shared place where they didn't have to be in the dominant role that, because that's I knew very strongly that's not what I was looking for um yeah but I think I was unusually aware of that. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, quite frankly, that's you, you, you lucked out. You lucked out. A lot of women think they're going for that, and then they get something completely different. Um, you know, and, and then I, what do and you do? And I do. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, one woman I rem- you know, recently I was having breakfast with, and she was saying, like, I thought my husband was that. And then... And then he wasn't, and it was heartbreaking. And so yeah. I absolutely think there is a piece of it that is is good fortune and luck. And I say thank you every day, <laughs> where because there's a lot of places <laughs> where life has been much less lucky. Where it is lucky, you say thank you, and I feel a lot of gratitude. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I I see that as well. So, um, but then you know we're all at the whim of the fates to one degree or another, no matter how powerful or control, in control we are. You know, I mean, it, it's life, life, life is life, and it does with us what it's going to do to a certain extent. Um, so, what do women do when they want the help? They need the help. They encourage the help. They cry for the help. They get the help, and it's not what they want. What do you do? It's, it, do you just lower your standards? It's not what they want, in, meaning it's it's not meeting their standards, or it's not, it's not what their they standards. want in that they really like being in control of that? Um, not meeting their standards. They not think they would standards. like to give give up control of it, but it's not the the, the help that they're getting is not sufficient. That's really hard. I understand that's really hard. 
And I think for me, the window has been much more, I have two sons, and I am very invested in raising feminist sons. And Mm -hmm. I feel even more strongly that I want to make sure there are those kind of men, like my husband, that will be really good partners to their to their wives, spouses, whatever, or girlfriends, whatever. And so I've seen that struggle that, you know, they're less aware, they, you know, do things that I go, how can you miss that <laughs> that kind of feeling? And at times it's made me really angry. And I I think it's much more into a window that a lot of women experience with their husbands. And it's it's very, very hard, first of all. Um, it's very emotional. I think what we found, what I found works best with them is to create a structure that helps make it happen. So, you know, with with cleaning up after dinner, you know, my husband and I would make the dinner or one of us and then we'd end up cleaning up and it's sort of like, why are we doing the cleanup? And so... You know, at one point we said, okay, you either help cook or you clean up, pick. But you have to do one of the two. And sort of having that structure we found really helped because you knew if you weren't going to – so if you say, hey, we're we're cooking, you want to come help? No, I don't want to come help. Okay, (laughs) well, then you got to do this. So to me that's been the best way to do it. And there's – somebody I remember talking about this this situation with, I mean, part of it, I think, is also not seeing it. And that's not an excuse because there is learned helplessness, and I know that is true. But, you know, there might be pillows in the floor, and, like, maybe he'd walk over them instead of picking them up and, you know, plumping them and putting them against the bed or whatever. And so this woman said, you know, every cell in my body wanted to pick up the pillow, right? How how ridiculous does that seem? It's going to take me two seconds to pick up the pillow. and But you know what? I kept doing that, and then I was just resentful as hell. So I took a picture of the pillow on the floor and texted it and said, please make sure to pick up the pillow. <laughs> and I felt ridiculous doing it, but you know what? It was sort of partly sensitizing so I do think that there's some of that as well and the only thing I can relate it to is being you know a kid and getting yelled at at times for you know not doing things but things that I really just didn't see it just wasn't like in my purview and I think you do have some of that going on so I think it's having some empathy for they may really not see it and I think, you know, it's finding that in between. Is it a will or is it a skill situation? And, like, how do you move that forward? And then how do you say, again, you know, this is really upsetting to me. So if you care about, like, this is part of how we care for one another in a relationship by understanding what's important to the other person. And, you know, so I think I see it sort of more in that construct. But I also see it as what I hear is I think that men feel really that they are not appreciated for so many things. I actually think everybody feels this. So let me step back and say I think everybody feels this. I think women feel like I'm doing the grocery shopping and I'm feeding and all these, you know, things every day, day in, day out, and they feel not appreciated. And I think men feel like, you know, it snows, I'm up at 5 o'clock shoveling all, you know, the driveway all by myself to make sure everyone gets out to work and school. And and so f- for me, because I feel so strongly about this, like I'm going to make sure I'm out at 5 o'clock shoveling the driveway and I'm going to be painting, you know, on the roof, chipping off something and I'm going to be painting the deck and, you know, whatever. I I purposely do that because I... It's a way for me to appreciate it more. And so some of that for me is like probably proactive for people. You know, it's maybe not your thing or you don't feel as comfortable or whatever. But I think walking in someone else's shoes is a very powerful way to appreciate more what they bring to the table. Well, I see it also as, and the older I get, the more I see this. We impose such standards on ourselves. The standards for cleanliness, I mean, when I was a child 110 years ago, 
we would wear a, 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 an article of clothing to school, and if it wasn't didn't have an obvious uh, dirty spot on it, and if you hadn't worn it for gym class or something where you were sweating, you put it back in your closet and you wore it one more day. Nobody would ever do that now. I don't do that now, and yet that was perfectly acceptable 110 years ago when I was a kid. Um, washing your floor, it didn't have to shine. It just had to have no dirt in it. Um, you know, 100 years ago, you, you know you know what I'm saying? We have imposed such unrealistic standards, and I see so many women especially working themselves into a lather trying to meet these standards, whether it's from with child-rearing or with housekeeping or management of a household. And I just think, where did we come up with these standards? Um, they are totally unrealistic, totally unrealistic, and they're making us go crazy. Do you agree? I mean, again, kind of violent agreement on this one. You know, part of a part of my frame of reference is how do we bring down the intensity for everyone in the family? Yeah. Like, there's a chapter in my book around parenting on steroids, and I live in a community where there's uber parenting on steroids. Oh. And, uh, as do I. I live that too. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's helicopter so, parenting you know, moved to the, you know, to the and, and degree. And so we're it's, always, I'm, I think, I'm not trying to be countercultural, but I think it's just how do we, how do we be happier? You know, like, yes. there's a lot of responsibility in life at this stage. A, you have parents and kids yeah. and jobs and, you know, how do we bring down the intensity for everybody? And exactly. sometimes it, exactly. There's not a there's um, not a right and a wrong answer. Lisa, I, you've mentioned your book a couple times. Please give us the name and the publisher for your book. Um, it's it, it's called the Libra Solution, and it's this idea of you know kind of more balance in terms of responsibility and power for women and men. And you know, okay. to me, that's that's a much happier outcome all the way around. Um, okay. It's, you so can the Libra it, Solution. By Lisa Levy, L-E-V-E-Y. Exactly. And And you can get it on Amazon um, or, you know, through – you can get it through the Kindle thing, but um, you can also go to my website, which is – Better for me as an author, so it's yeah. no big deal. And my my company is um, Libra Consulting, and if you if you type that in my name, it will get there. It's libraconsulting.biz, and there is a .com, but if you type Libra Consulting, L-I-B-R-A, and then my name, Lisa Levy, it will go right to my website, and you can you can get it there. Lisa, I've had a wonderful time chatting with you about this. This is an interesting topic, and it seems to be an age-old and never-ending topic. It just changes <laughs> shape and morphs. Um, you know, The fact is we have to keep ourselves clean. We have to keep our children and our homes clean. But do they have to be spit-polished? I mean, I, I don't think so. Um, I end the show every week with a quote, and I had so much fun I, uh, finding quotes for housekeeping and house cleaning and you know maintenance of homes that I'm actually going to spend the next minute reading some of these quotes, Lisa, so I hope you enjoy them. Um, I don't know if you know who Irma Bombeck is. She was a comedian. Oh, um, yes, she of was, course. She was actually... <laughs> yeah, she was actually a, a mom. She she was a journalist. She was a stay-at-home mom, raised like four kids, and in order to get her creative juices flowing, she started doing a um, column for a local tiny little newspaper, and it swept her all the way into the national and international fame, but she passed away many years ago. She said, my idea of housework is to sweep the room with a glance. <laughs> Roseanne Barr. I'm not going to vacuum until Sears makes one you can ride on. (laughs) A gentleman, let's not forget our gentleman friends here, Robert Brault. There is no daily chore so trivial that it cannot be made more important by skipping it for a few days. (laughs) Funny how things do do become more crisis-oriented if they're not kept clean, right? Mm. Um, Simone de Beauvoir, help me with the pronunciation, Lisa. De Beauvoir, right? I, th- I Simone think that's correct. Yeah. Few tasks are more like the torture of Sisyphus than housework. 
With its endless repetition, the clean becomes soiled, the soiled is made clean over and over, day after day. And uh, that, that kind of sums it up for me, the repetition. And Phyllis Diller, who can forget any comment about housework without talking about Phyllis Diller? Housework can't kill you, but why take a chance? And finally, <laughs> another. We'll, we'll close it out with another gentleman's comment. Mario Boata, I have no idea who he is. Dust is a protective coating for fine furniture. So if you want to, if you want to keep your house, your furnishings nice, I guess keep that protective coating on them. And be gentle to yourself. Be kind to yourself. The world won't end if someone finds a speck of dust somewhere. Uh, thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us, talking about this age-old topic and sharing your views. And thank you for listening on Three Women, Three Ways. Join us next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.